Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so I was told that last week a number of things were covered, but specifically the sacrament of baptism. So we began this new section of the catechism, uh, working through each of the sacraments. First, beginning with what is a sacrament uh, kind of in itself? What is kind of the constitution of a sacrament? And, uh, And the catechism gives a kind of classic Augustinian definition of a sacrament, which is it is an outward and, outward and physical or material thing, right, that has an inward and spiritual grace. This is Augustine's kind of classic definition of a sacrament, right? So each time we look to analyze a particular sacrament, we always want to begin with the outward and material thing and then move and, and then kind of uh, uh, reflect on what is the inward and spiritual grace given. So, for instance, just to review from last week, the sacrament of baptism. Right? Obviously, the outward material thing in baptism is water and the Trinitarian name. Right? Uh, water, obviously, having these uh, deep biblical uh, uh, connotations of cleansing, uh, of repentance, right? Uh, around the time of Jesus, baptism as a practice had emerged. This is why we see John the Baptist come uh, and call for uh, Israelites to repent and be baptized, right? Uh, a call for kind of renewal, repentance, restoration, right? And the Christian doctrine of baptism begins with this. It picks up on this, uh, these connotations around water, right? As a kind of symbolics of repentance, Right? But then it actually moves, and it moves a little bit deeper than this, right? It is repentance, but the inward and spiritual grace of baptism is this and more, right? In question 106, just to review, right? The inward and spiritual grace is death to sin and a new birth to righteousness, right? So it is a, it is a repentance, uh, but we might specify what kind of repentance it is by calling it new birth, right? Or to use... Uh, more theological uh, language, perhaps, in the language of the liturgy, regeneration, right? Kind of new birth, right? But it's even more through union with Christ in his death and resurrection, right? In the sacrament, and this is most vividly depicted when we do uh, uh, baptism by immersion, right? Uh, The person undergoing baptism uh, dies in the water, right, is laid to death in the water, right, united with Christ in his death, as Paul says, right, but only so that they may be raised with him in his resurrection, right. So it's this, this deep kind of uh, 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 participation language, right. For Paul and for especially the early Christian tradition, the primary way of thinking about probably really all sacraments, but especially baptism, is through the language of participatio, right? Participation, right? In some ways, sharing in the life, death, resurrection 
of Christ, right? And baptism affects this, right? It joins us in a true way to Christ, right? Union with Christ is the doctrine of this, right? And because of this, right, Anglicans have always held that baptism is not simply a kind of outward declaration of an inward faith, right? This might be a more uh, a kind of Baptist or Anabaptist uh, conception of baptism, right? Anglicans believe that baptism is a sacrament, right? That it conveys a grace, right? And so it's not simply a kind of public declaration of something already occurring within an individual's soul, right? It affects something in the soul. It gives something. It gives a grace, right? Of course, we don't want to deprive this of our children, right? Um, we want, to, we want uh, children from the earliest age to receive this grace, right? And so in question 108, for instance, in the catechism, it talks about baptism in a way similar to circumcision in the Old Testament, right? It's actually St. Paul who makes this connection, right? That baptism is uh, a kind of new spiritual circumcision, right? Just as in the Old Testament, circumcision was the means by which new children were welcomed into the community of faith, right? By this outward and physical sign, right? Now in the new community of Christ, children are welcomed into this body of Christ by way of baptism, right? Now, I actually think that this is in many ways uh, actually an old... Uh, uh, a very reformed kind of Protestant uh, doctrine. It's, it's kind of sola gratia, right? Grace alone to the fullest extent, right? Because it says God doesn't kind of wait around for our kids to grow up and declare uh, a kind of confession of faith and then respond by giving us grace, right? Uh, that's kind of semi-Pelagian, right? Semi-Pelagianism. No, no, God goes after us, right? Through his church, God saves us in baptism, right? God is always the first one who acts, who gives us grace before we can ever respond, right? It's always God's first action. And so it's most, this, this reality of, of grace alone, right, uh, or grace first, we might say, is really displayed in infant baptism because we know that an infant can't possibly express or articulate, uh, say, Nicene faith, right? We don't expect our children to confess the creed before we, baptize in them, before we baptize them. No, it's the faith of the church, right, that confesses on their behalf, right, that they may grow into this faith. But we don't, into this faith, but we don't deprive them of grace, right? We grant them grace so that they may be raised in this grace of baptism. So before we move on then to what this actually looks like, um, any questions on um, some of the discussion from last week, I don't know how much you covered on infant baptism, but any questions kind of left over from that discussion before we move on? Yeah, John. I was out of time last week, so if this has been dealt with, feel free to just say, let's talk about it later. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so this is really good. So I want to say a couple of things about this. Um, first is, as, as I understand, I think as the catechism understands it, the witness of the New Testament is always uh, believe and be baptized together, 
right? There's one instance in which this is separated. It's kind of a strange instance where uh, the apostles hear about these people who have been baptized, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. And so this uh, kind of, uh, something's gone wrong here, right? There's kind of the separation of what normally happens in baptism, which is you believe, you're baptized, and you receive the Holy Spirit in one continuous act. We might call this act conversion, right? For the New Testament, the paradigm example for this is, all, is adult baptism, and actually, Anglicans maintain that this is the paradigm kind of instance of, of baptism, right? The church grows by way of conversion primarily, not by uh, uh, having children and, uh, and baptizing them, though obviously we, we do that. And when the church is not doing evangelism, right, this is often the way the church grows is by way of biological birth, right? But when the church is truly kind of on mission, it grows primarily by new birth, by conversion, right, by making disciples and baptizing them. So we always want to keep in mind, right, kind of when we think of what baptism is kind of in its essence, keep in mind, right, adult baptism. This is kind of the, the, the kind of paradigm of the New Testament. But early on, Christians had this uh, uh, kind of decision to make, right, well, do we only baptize adults, right? And we see even from, from the New Testament itself, the answer was most likely no, Obviously, we don't have any examples of infant baptism in, in the New Testament, but we have examples of whole families being baptized, right? Obviously, whole families in the New Testament not just being a, kind of a, a biological family unit, but whole households, right, including um, uh, servants and people kind of associated with a the family, these, these massive kinds of uh, uh, communities, right, of, uh, of domestic households. Um, once, say, the head of the household converts, the whole family uh, is baptized, right? So we see something like this uh, image of baptism uh, uh, emerging in the New Testament, and then very early on, um, infant baptism its practice as a kind of interpretation of, of this. Very early on also, the appeal to Paul's notion of baptism as circumcision, uh, as new circumcision or spiritual circumcision, as he calls it, is one of the primary ways of reflecting on infant baptism. So that's kind of the biblical basis for a lot of patristic thinking about infant baptism, is to think about it in terms of circumcision. Paul lays this out in Colossians chapter 2, I believe is where, Colossians chapter 2. Yeah. Any other questions on, on infant baptism? Yeah. Yeah, so this, this is also a really good question. Um, yeah, I, I think um, one would. I think one would want to say, why not? Right? Um, uh, infants infants express uh, desire, need, right? Uh, these sorts of things in all kinds of way, right? Uh, express desire for uh, touch, right? Desire for food, right? These sorts of things, and, and they have ways of articulating it, right? Usually, it's it's by crying or even by reaching, right, or something like this. Um, uh, so, so it makes me want to say, why would we not think the same thing about a kind of spiritual desire, right, for God? If, if kind of human creatures are by nature oriented towards God, right, directed towards their supernatural end of beatitude, why would we not have some evidence of a child kind of desiring this, right? Uh, Henri de Lubac, the, the French Catholic theologian, called it the natural desire for the supernatural, Right? natural desire for God. And, uh, you know, I like to think that something like this happens when uh, 
I'm administering the sacrament and uh, I'm, I'm giving it to a parent and maybe the uh, child is not yet baptized or, or is not receiving, but often uh, the child will reach out for the chalice, right? Now, I don't know what, I don't know what that means, but I like to think that there's some kind of fundamental desire for, for, for Christ, for union with Christ. Uh, maybe we call that faith. You know, often our, our definitions of faith are too intellectual, right? Too kind of discursive. Um, not wrongly so, you know, this is certainly an important part, right? To be able to think faith. Uh, to consider doctrines, to articulate belief, right? But faith is so much bigger than this, right? Uh, and, and infants kind of uh, reflecting on what, what faith infants might have uh, can be really useful in kind of expanding our notion of what we think faith is. But it's important to say that faith, the faith of an infant is not the precondition of baptism, right? It's the faith of the church, and particularly the faith of the church expressed through the vows and commitments of parents and godparents, Right? So for Anglicans uh, and, and for especially kind of early Christians, right, faith was never really an individual thing, right? Uh, it was something individuals participated in. But faith was, right, primarily uh, thought of as the faith or faithfulness of Jesus Christ, right, which is kind of participated in by the whole church, right? So the church is allowed to make vows on behalf of its children, right, just like in Israel, uh, the act of circumcision was a kind of vow, right? That this person is truly welcomed into the household of God, Israel, but also we commit to raising this child in the household of God. Good question. Yeah, yeah, this is, good, this is a great question. Um, yeah, this, these past two weekends, I've been uh, at two baptisms uh, uh, as, as a godparent. And at one of them... Um, uh, we were, I was given a um, certificate, and on the back it had kind of listed out a number of uh, responsibilities, uh, of, or, or responsibilities or kinds of forms of what it might look like to take seriously the responsibility of godparents. So, so let's begin first with what happens in the actual liturgy. This is a really fascinating uh, thing that happens, at least here, not in all churches, but what happens here in baptism is... Uh, the child begins in the arms of her parents, right? Uh, and then the parents hand her to the priest to be baptized. The priest baptizes her and then hands her back, but not to the parents, right? The priest actually hands the child to the godparents, right? This really interesting image of what happens in baptism, right? Which is that a child is almost taken for a second, from her kind of biological family in order to be joined to this larger household of God, the family of the church, right? Represented by these new parents, godparents, right? It's this kind of expanding of what we take parenthood to entail, right? So uh, let's flesh this out a little bit. In the Christian theological tradition, reflection on parenthood is importantly different from, uh, or, or it's, not, uh, it's not different, but it's not identified with um, the responsibilities simply of mother and father, right? Uh, for instance, we have all throughout uh, Christian history uh, nuns raising children, right? And so what it means to be a parent, right, uh, is a kind of larger category than just being uh, the biological parents of a child, right? So one way of thinking about what it means to uh, be a godparent is to participate in parenthood of a child that's not your own right? 
And uh, I think there could be a, I think one could like run with this, maybe like a, a doctoral dissertation or something like this, by looking at how, say, monastic orders that cared for orphans thought about the vocation of parenthood when the children weren't your own, right? And I think one could kind of run with that and, and map that on to a theology of, of godparenthood, right? Um, that your responsibilities are not to be a child's biological parents, but in some way to participate in the raising of the children, right? So what does this look like in, in practice, right? I mean, um, for those who, who live in proximity to their godchildren, uh, this can take really important forms like um, meeting, with, meeting with your godchildren uh, for prayer and Bible study, Right? taking a kind of spiritual mentorship, almost, approach to it. The primary responsibility of a godparent, I take it to be, is prayer, right? To be in constant, even daily prayer for one's godchildren, that they may be raised and grow in maturity in Christ. Um, another important kind of role is helping the child remember her baptism, right? So uh, often uh, parents or godparents will send a kind of a letter, say, on the anniversary of a child's baptism, maybe with a gift or something like this, right? To kind of facilitate this understanding of, for the child very early on, that my baptismal remembrance, that anniversary, is something really important because all these people are taking it really seriously. They're sending me presents and, you know, writing me cards and stuff. So you grow up kind of with this sense that actually your baptismal birthday is almost more important than your actual birthday, right? So this is one way that godparents can kind of help uh, participate in that, right? Right? Uh, the sense that uh, uh, one's baptism and the vows made on one's behalf at, at baptism, right, uh, are serious and to be remembered and recommitted to. Right? Those are just some, a couple ideas. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think one, one could really explore this in terms of a theology of parenthood, right, uh, which is larger than just uh, kind of caring for one's biological children, that we all in some way raise each other's children, right? It takes a village or whatever. Um, yeah, any other questions on infant baptism? Okay, let's uh, do the last question on, on baptism because I'm really excited to talk about uh, the Blessed Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. So question 109, what signs of the Holy Spirit's work do you hope and pray to see as a result of your baptism? I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit who indwells me will help me to be an active member of my Christian community, participate in worship, continually repent and return to God, proclaim the faith, love, and serve my neighbor, and strive for justice and peace. Just a couple of things to to kind of uh, wrap up this treatment of baptism, right? Um, In the liturgy of holy baptism, um, uh, or, sorry, in the liturgy of uh, our Sunday uh, uh, liturgy of, of Holy Eucharist, one of the uh, phrases that we use in the prayer after communion, if you remember this, right, we pray that uh, we will be living members of Christ's body, right? Um, something like this is being picked up in this, in this answer, right? That um, we hope and pray the Holy Spirit indwells me will help me become an active member of my Christian community. Because what happens in in holy baptism, right, but that we are joined to Christ's body, right, say in an ontological way, right, truly, truly united to Christ's body, 
in baptism, just as we share in his death and resurrection, right, in, in, in baptism. But of course, Christ's body is not simply that body which was crucified and risen, but his body, the church, right? And this is why baptism is a welcoming into, in a very real way, Christ's body, the church, right? But we don't want to, you know, uh, kind of um, dead members, right, uh, of Christ's body. We want living members, right? People who are active, right? So the grace of holy baptism really is a kind of grace which propels us into this active, dynamic life of participation in Christ's body, right? Baptism is the catalyst for the Christian life in a lot of ways, and it leads to not just becoming an active member, but participation in worship, right? Chiefly and primarily uh, in the receiving of the Holy Eucharist, right? One way that uh, in the kind of Christian theological tradition, the Holy Eucharist is referred to as the food of the baptized, right? If baptism in, in some way is kind of being brought to the table, welcomed to the table, and being brought into the church, right? Um, well, you're brought to the table for a reason. It's to eat, to feast, right? And so there's this, one might say, intrinsic connection between baptism and Eucharist, right? They belong together, right? And so baptism is a kind of uh, sets you on a road to this pattern of participating in worship primarily uh, in receiving God's grace in the Holy Eucharist. Baptism leads to a continual repentance and return to God, right? Um, one might see this primarily in the renewal of baptismal vows, right? We do this every time we baptize a new member of Christ's body um, by joining in the vows uh, that, the, that the candidate makes, right? We renew our own vows, right? That's why when, when we do the our liturgy for baptism, we switch from uh, the Nicene Creed to the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is kind of traditionally this baptismal creed, right? Um, and so in the liturgy, we, we, we join with the candidates in renewing our vows, right? And primarily by confessing with them the Apostles' Creed. But then we also do this every Sunday back here, right? When we walk in the doors and we take a little bit of water uh, of, of consecrated water from the baptismal font and we mark ourselves, right? And we remember our baptism. We remember as we walk through the doors into the church, literally, we remember that it is by baptism, right, that we were welcomed into the church in the first place, right? And so every Sunday as we walk into the church, we're kind of renewing our baptismal vows, marking ourselves with the very water that we were baptized with, right? So this kind of continual repentance and recommitment and renewal of our vows, right? And then finally, right, the, the kind of, um, uh, the, the way that the kind of uh, the sacrament of baptism gets cashed out, right, in terms of the spiritual life outside these doors is in terms of mission, right? To proclaim the faith, to love and serve my neighbor, to strive for justice and peace, right? There's something inherently missional, about baptism. It's included in the vows uh, themselves, right? Part of what we vow is not just um, that we would, uh, in, in our baptisms, part of what we vow is not simply, right, that we vow to study the scriptures, to pursue a life of holiness, to these sorts of things, but we uh, make these commitments of mission as well, right, to proclaim the gospel uh, and to work for justice and peace in the world.
Okay. If there are no questions anymore on baptism, uh, well, this isn't probably the last chance that we can talk about baptism. Um, but since baptism and Eucharist are inherently and intimately linked, we've got to talk about the sacrament of Holy Communion. So let's move to question 110. Why did Christ institute the sacrament of Holy, baptism, of Holy Communion? He instituted it for the continued remembrance of the sacrifice of his atoning death to convey the benefits the faithful receive through that sacrifice. Okay. So I'm just going to kind of say a few things about a few different phrases in here to kind of get at um, this reality that the reason Christians celebrate um, uh, uh, the Holy Eucharist, right, is because Christ commands it and first, we might say, instituted it, right? Um, and so he instituted in the, in, a, in the gospel accounts and in Paul's reflection on these gospel accounts, right? Um, one of the primary things that this kind of continued celebration of the Holy Eucharist does is it calls to remembrance Christ's death, right? Now, of course, this isn't, this isn't all it does, right? Um, the Eucharist is more than a memory, right? It's more than simply... Um, a way to remember Christ's death. But it definitely is this. And in fact, it, actually, it's because it is this uh, that we can say we're, we in some way will actually come to participate in Christ's death and resurrection by celebrating this sacrament. Right? The, the kind of classical word that Christians use to get at this is anamnesis, right? Um, to know again, right? Remembrance as a kind of... Um, knowing again, a kind of anamnesis to recall, but recalling in a way that makes the thing truly present, right? And what is the thing? His atoning death, right? Uh, atonement, right? This uh, notion of God by the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, making us at one with God, right? Atonement captures this language of at one meant, Right? to become one with God, to be reconciled to God, right? And to convey the benefits the faithful receive through that sacrifice. So we, say kind of, we see kind of laid out in this question, right? One of the things that the sacrament of Holy Communion is, is a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. So this, ought, this kind of usually brings up the question. Uh, I could wait for someone to raise it, but I'll just raise it myself, uh, which is uh, about this language of sacrifice. Uh, Protestants have often been very uncomfortable with this part of uh, the traditional liturgy and from uh, uh, kind of classical Christian conceptions of the Holy Eucharist, right? That um, what happens in the, in the Eucharist is a sacrifice is made, a Eucharistic sacrifice, right? Just to put it bluntly. Um, part of what some of the continental reformers did was to react really strongly against this notion of Eucharistic sacrifice. Now, we could get into a lot of detail about what they thought they were reacting to, what kinds of doctrines, right? Um, uh, but um, the, the basic thing is this, right? Part of what the reformers, even some of the English, the Anglican reformers, uh, were very worried about was this idea that at the Eucharist, somehow the priest was re-sacrificing Christ, you know, kind of uh, crucifying him over and over again, right? Now, whether or not uh, 
any, anyone kind of in the Roman Catholic Church actually believed that. Um, they thought they did, right? Probably uh, people in the pews maybe uh, got this idea. It was never really part of uh, kind of official church teaching, but reformers react really strongly against this idea that somehow the priest might be re-sacrificing Christ, right? So they dispense with it, right? Fortunately for Anglicans, the idea of the Eucharist as a sacrifice has kind of always been there for us in the liturgy, right? And it wasn't until a little bit later, after the kind of fires of the Reformation kind of uh, cooled down a little bit, that Anglicans were able to go back and reappreciate what, what do we mean when we call the Eucharist a sacrifice, right? And part of what the Oxford movement, uh, the Tractarian movement uh, 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 of the 19th century, people like uh, John Henry Newman, uh, Pusey, Hebel, these great kind of Catholic Anglican figures did, they went back to the church fathers, right? to recover a kind of, um, well, really a kind of faithful, uh, 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 faithful theological conception of the Eucharist as a sacrifice. How do they do this? They drew on this important patristic and indeed biblical notion of participation, right? That in some way what happens in the Holy Eucharist is not that Christ is re-sacrificed, were sacrificed over and over again, right? But that the one sacrifice of the cross is truly brought into our midst, right? That in some way this sacrament, right, this Eucharist participates in Christ's one sacrifice for sin, right? To get to say something about kind of a continual re-sacrificing of Christ really cuts hard against, for instance, the arguments uh, put forward in the epistle to the Hebrews, right? That Christ's sacrifice uh, is unique precisely in that it's uh, a sacrifice for sin once for all, right? For the author to the Hebrews, uh, one of the shortcomings of the Old Testament sacrificial system was that priests had to continually sacrifice animals for the, for, uh, the, the forgiveness of sins, right? And so the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice is that it is once for all, Right? So for the fathers, this is always the case, right? But it's not as if Christ's one sacrifice for all kind of uh, is bound to the past, right, as a memory, right? It's always kind of bursting forth continually in the present by way of participation, right? The Eucharist is a representation of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, but in a true sense, a representation. It's continually given to us, right? Truly given to us, truly represented, right? Okay. Any questions on Eucharistic sacrifice? I like to talk about that one because I think it's really important. It's all throughout the liturgy, right? This, this our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, right? That in some ways we are welcomed into liturgically uh, offering Christ back to God, right? Of course, it's never we who offer Christ, but always Christ who offers himself to the Father, but he welcomes us into this act of offering, right, Christ to God and thus ourselves, right? We offer ourselves, our souls and bodies, right, to be a living sacrifice to God. Yeah, so it's, it's, always hard. it's always hard because um, so many of the kind of, um, 
arguments against Eucharistic sacrifice or the arguments for a better understanding of Eucharistic sacrifice use this kind of foil of, uh, yeah, perpetual sacrifice or re-sacrifice. Um, and it's unclear if anyone really ever believed this as a kind of doctrine. Uh, so it's always kind of like invented as a foil. Um, but the idea of representing, right, is I think a good, a good one, right? It's to say, it's to guard us against the idea that what we're doing is re-sacrificing Christ. We're representing the one sacrifice on the cross, right? Or we're kind of making it available to us, or Christ is making it available to us over and over again, right? So the, the actual act of sacrifice, right, which is Christ giving of himself for the forgiveness of sins, right? This is a one act in history, right? Takes place on the cross, right? But the representation of that act truly occurs in the sacrament of the Eucharist. In a way analogous, we might say, to how um, Christ's death and resurrection is represented, represented or represented in the sacrament of baptism, right? Um, it's more than just a kind of symbolics, right? It's more than just, oh, it looks like that person is doing the act of Christ dying and rising. How nice to remember that Christ did that a long time ago, right? No, truly, that sacrifice of death and resurrection is here uh, in a very real way as we participate in it in baptism. Bobby? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, part of what early Christians do in drawing on uh, this notion of Christ as Passover, right? Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, is to kind of draw the analogy that when Christians participate in the Eucharist um, and are kind of represented with Christ, it's very similar to what Israel understood themselves to be doing in the, in the Passover, right? Which was not just a memory. It wasn't just a recalling, but something about, right, uh, performing this rite of Passover for Israel was a making present of that great act of exodus of God's liberation from Egypt every moment that the Passover was celebrated, every year, right? Um, the, the way that the Passover liturgy uh, uh, is written and, and is performed, right? It's clearly not, um, let's remember these things that happened, but the sense that we're, we're somehow actually there in participating in this liturgy, right? Uh, this is the great thing about liturgy, right? Not only does it collapse kind of boundaries of space, right? In that when we participate in this, uh, in this sacrifice at this altar, we actually are participating in the sacrifice of altars all around the world, right? In some ways, there's only one Eucharist and we're all participating in it, right? But we also are collapsing the boundaries of time, right? Uh, in the liturgy, uh, what happened 2,000 years ago, right? kind of breaks forth in a true way. Or we might say we're taken back, right? We're really there in a sense, right? When we, when we uh, are brought to the altar in this liturgy, and sometimes in, in some sense we're beholding the cross of Christ, right? Okay. Let's go on to question 111. What is the outward and visible sign in Holy Communion? The visible sign is bread and wine, which Christ commands us to receive. So um, I'll just be kind of short on this one because I really want to get to the inward and spiritual things signified. But um, 
it's important that we use bread and wine. Um, in part because to use the to use the phrase that I'm sure Father Lee is continually using in this uh, in this um, catechesis course, matter matters, right? I'm not the first one to say that. Probably Father Lee has probably said that many times. Matter matters, right? The kinds of things we use, um, the outward visible signs, right, uh, are important. We don't use. Mountain Dew and Cheetos to celebrate the Eucharist, right? Uh, I was told this would sometimes happen in youth groups. I never did this in my youth group, but people would have, you know, these kind of Lord's suppers with Mountain Dew and Cheetos. Um, no, it's important that we use bread and wine, but it's also important that we use bread and wine, right? Uh, sometimes folks can get stuck on this. Like, why not grape juice and, um, and, and um, well, say even like gluten-free bread, right? So, uh, many arguments, especially in recent years, uh, have been occurring about kind of the legitimacy of gluten-free bread, given that kind of gluten allergies are becoming more and more present, right? Um, I'm going to kind of punt on that for now. Um, but just to say, part of the reason why these debates actually happen in the first place is because we take really seriously, right, the importance of using the actual elements Christ himself used, Right? Because what we're doing, right, in celebrating the Holy Eucharist is participating in Christ's institution of the Holy Sacrament, right? So we want to use the same things he uses. Uh, I think that's all I'll say about that, because I want to talk about the inward and spiritual uh, things signified. So 112, what is the inward and spiritual things signified? The spiritual things signified is the body and blood of Christ, which are truly taken and received by faith. Okay. Let me clarify something about this answer real fast, because it says the spiritual thing signified is the body and blood of Christ, right? What do we mean when we say that the body and blood of Christ are spiritual, right? Um, it's different than saying um, the body and blood of Christ are, um, we might say, uh, uh, not real, right? Not truly the body and blood of Christ. It's kind of spiritual, right? It's a spiritual meaning, but not truly the body and blood of Christ, right? Um, this has a lot of problems with, uh, uh, this, this kind of exemplifies a problem of what we think spiritual means, which is like something like not quite as real, right? In fact, the spiritual is the thing that's more real than the real, right? Uh, no, what is received spiritually is the true body and blood of Christ, right? Or you might say spiritual is the mode of receiving the true body and blood of Christ, right? Spiritual, in other, way, in other words, describes not the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, spiritual presence as opposed to real presence, right? Spiritual describes our act of participating in this, right? This is our spiritual act of participating in Christ, right? We eat by faith, in other words, right? Um, in, throughout the church's history, different attempts to describe the mode of Christ's presence in the Holy Eucharist have been offered. Um, you probably have heard some of them, right? Transubstantiation, 
right? Um, memorialism, consubstantiationalism, right? Spiritual presence or things like this. Um, the best way I think that Anglicans have tried to describe how Christ is present in the Holy Eucharist is to go back to this language that I've been talking about of participation, participatio, right? Uh, which is pri- it's the primary kind of way that early Christians thought about how the Lord Jesus was present to them in the sacrament, right? It was by way of participation, right? The kind of classic image of this, um, of how these elements of bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, right, while nevertheless remaining bread and wine, right, is to think about this image of an iron, of iron in the fire, right? What happens to iron in the fire, right? Iron never ceases to remain iron, right? Nevertheless, it takes on in a very real way the qualities of fire, right? Um, This sense that iron actually participates in the fire um, that is something different from it, right? But nevertheless comes to participate in a real way, right? Something like this happens in the Holy Eucharist, right? The bread and the wine never cease to be bread and wine, right? Um, they don't change into something else, but they take on something else, right? You might think about this in terms of Christological language. What happens in the incarnation, right? Does the Son of God, the Word of God, the eternal Son of God, cease becoming God as God takes on flesh? No, right? Flesh is joined to the Godhead, right? Christ is forever son of God, right? But he becomes more. He takes on something to himself, takes on flesh, right? So we might say, right, in the classical formulation, this is very God and very man, truly God and truly man, not half God, half man, right? 100% God, 100% man, two things, right? Something like this, this kind of Christological uh, imagination can help us understand what goes on in the Holy Sacrament, right? That the bread and wine... Uh, fortunately for our sake, always remain bread and wine. Thomas Aquinas called this one of God's graces, that in fact, uh, uh, for our benefit, they remain and taste and feel and smell like uh, uh, wine and bread, not body and blood, right? Nevertheless, they truly actually possess the qualities they participate in the very body and blood of Christ. Okay. Question 113. What benefits do you receive through partaking of the sacrament? As my body is nourished by the bread and wine, I receive the strengthening and refreshing of my soul by the body and blood of Christ, and I receive the strengthening and refreshing of the love and unity I share with fellow Christians with whom I am united in the one body of Christ. Okay, just a couple of things here. Um, it's, important, it's important to think about the symbolics of eating and drinking this sacrament, right? Thomas Aquinas was someone who really paid attention to uh, the ways that the outward visible signs were not kind of incidental to the meaning of the inward and spiritual grace, but they told us something about what that grace is, Right? So for Aquinas, for instance, it's important to really think about what happens when we eat and drink this, right? right? If baptism is a kind of 
new birth, right? Um, well, we need food to nourish us in the life that, uh, uh, is, that begins after this new birth, right? And so just as kind of bread is our true nourishment in this life, right? Aquinas says even in a more true way is the Holy, is the Holy Eucharist our food, our spiritual food, right? Our manna, right? Aquinas loves to point to uh, this, this kind of analogy of, of Christ's body uh, in the Holy Sacrament with the manna given to Israel in the Old Testament, that not only was it food for sustenance, but it was your only food, right? Eat this or you'll die in the desert, right? It's the food for the pilgrim, right? It's the only means of sustenance. Uh, uh, I mean, not the only means of sustenance, but it's the primary way of sustenance on the Christian life, right? It's also a means of grace, right? That what we receive in the Holy Sacrament is sanctifying grace, right? If in baptism we're joined to Christ, we're united to Christ in his death, death and resurrection, then this kind of continual receiving of the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist is a kind of making good of that, right? Uh, it's a growing into that reality. If we're joined to Christ's body in baptism, then we're ever more joined to Christ's body again and again and again as we receive that body in the Holy Sacrament. St. Augustine probably put this better than anyone, right? Uh, In this great sermon where he tells his congregation, uh, kind of reflecting on what it means to eat uh, and drink this sacrament. He says, uh, think about what happens when you eat and drink food, Uh, food and drink that this thing, that which is external to you, right, and eating and drinking it um, becomes part of you, right? Breaks down, uh, you receive the nutrients, it kind of becomes part of your body, right? He's like, exactly the opposite of that happens when we receive the Holy Eucharist, because it doesn't become what you are, but you become what it is, right? In a very literal way, Augustine says, you are what you eat, right? As you eat Christ's body, you become joined to Christ's body, right? You become ever more what you eat. And when you eat Christ's body, you're joined to Christ's body over and over again, united, and, uh, united to his body, right? And then finally, the, the second move that this question, the answer to this question makes, right, is the kind of social ecclesial dimension of the Holy Eucharist, Right? that in receiving the Holy Eucharist, we're not just joined to Christ himself, but joined to Christ with others, right? We're united to his body, the church, right? Henri de Lubac, the, the great French Catholic theologian, again says, right, the Eucharist makes the church, right? Um, by all of us receiving this one body and being joined to Christ, we're joined to one another, not kind of abstractly by bonds of charity, right, by, by our kind of relationships with each other. Those are secondary, right? Those follow from the first reality that we're all joined to Christ the center, as Bonhoeffer would say, right? And in being joined to Christ the center, we're joined to one another. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, I'll repeat the question, yeah. Uh, so, so the question is whether or not Christ's kind of um, temptation 
uh, in the wilderness and this temptation uh, to make bread from stones, I'm guessing that's what you're referring to, right? It has any kind of commentary on uh, the meaning of the Holy Eucharist. Um, I want to say yes, because one, one of the things I've learned, uh, especially from Thomas Aquinas, is uh, how to read, uh, read Scripture not just Christologically, but Eucharistically, right? So someone like Thomas Aquinas is going to look and see the Eucharist everywhere. Uh, so why not see, every time you see bread appear, uh, look for the Eucharist, right? Um, how we might see the Eucharist there, uh, I'd have to think about it. Uh, it seems in this instance, based on Christ's response, right, uh, that uh, bread in this sense is, is identified with the Word of God, right, uh, which is uh, a major trope running throughout uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by the Word of God, right, the kind of true bread, right? And church as best has always said that uh, the true bread of God, right? The bread of life is both word and sacrament, right? Uh, I'll close with this because we're, we're running out of time, but um, uh, last week I was uh, teaching my, my uh, Christian scriptures class through the Gospel of John, and we were reflecting on John 6, right? This discourse that Jesus gives on the bread of life, um, where he draws the analogy to uh, 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 manna given to Israel in the desert, where he says outrageous things like, um, uh, whoever does not eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, there is no life in you, right? And then uh, you have the people who say, come on now, uh, what are you saying? You must be uh, uh, drawing a metaphor, right? Says, no, no, there's no metaphor, right? <laughs> I mean this, right? Uh, and they're offended and they leave, right? Uh, the people who hear this kind of teaching of Jesus, they leave, right? And it's only disciples who remain, right? Jesus himself is a little bit surprised the disciples remain, right? And he asked them uh, why they remain. And what does Peter say? He says, Lord, to whom can we go? You alone have the words of life, right? So even in this passage, talking about the bread of life, which is often interpreted Eucharistically, we always have to keep in mind, right, uh, the bread of life is also Christ's word, right? And so to go back to this class that I was teaching on John 6, we looked at Thomas Aquinas. I'm talking a lot about Thomas Aquinas today. Uh, we looked at Thomas's interpretation of this passage uh, of Christ's discourse on the bread of life, right? And you would think that uh, uh, we, we compared it with the commentary of John Calvin. Calvin uh, says, you know, nothing to see here in terms of Eucharist. This is all about Jesus' word. The, the, the scripture is the word of life, right? And you might think that Thomas Aquinas would say, uh, this is all about the Eucharist, right? But in fact, he always says it's importantly both about Christ's life-giving words, right, his teachings, right, attested to and, and contained in the Holy Scriptures with his true body uh, and blood, right, in the Holy Sacrament. So something like this may, be help, uh, may help us uh, under, understand this passage from the temptation, right? When Christ says, uh, you cannot live by bread alone, right, uh, but by the Word of God, right? Um, what happens in the Holy Eucharist is it's always paired with the reception of Christ's life-giving bread, both in word and sacrament, right? And importantly, always together. Okay, we've got to finish up there. And uh, either I or someone else will continue this section on the Holy Eucharist next week. All right. We'll begin with the service of Holy Eucharist shortly. <laughs>